Take your Bibles. We find the book of Colossians 3. We'll be there in a moment. Uh, I want us to continue right on our study. We've been talking about uh, this whole life change element that God is doing in us, changing us. And uh, Paul is actually giving us this metaphor. He talks about wearing and putting on and taking off. And I don't know about you, but immediately when I come to my mind, I think about my childhood growing up when I used to want to be a police officer. I wanted to be an army man. And I had uncles that were both and they gave me their old uniforms and I would dress up like a policeman one day. And then the next day I'd be an army man and dress up in my uncle's army fatigues and they would swallow me, but I loved them because they were real and authentic. Our kids played dress up in Africa, especially. We can remember that. We had a particular barrel or bucket that we would put all of their outside play clothes in and because um, we had nothing but a sandy dirt yard. We didn't have grass. And so our kids would come in and they would be lathered in, with, in mud and sweat and the sand sticking to them. Take out your play clothes, take them off outside. We'd wash them once a week, whether they needed it or not. And we would put them in that basket. We had litters of kittens that had kittens in those baskets of clothes and they would just get them up, shake it off and then put the clothes on. They just love dress up. There's something about playing dress up. But you know what? You play dress up even as an adult. And you're, if you're a, a doctor or you're in the medical profession, you have scrubs. And if you're in the military, obviously you have that. If you're the police officer, you have, you have your uniforms. Uh, there's certain uh, ways you dress that, that indicate who you are or your identity on the inside is by the way you dress on the outside. Well, I want to talk about that today. Not the dress up, Christian dress up where we put on clothes that make us look holy, but in reality, there's a dark, empty, cavernous shell on the inside. But it's something that actually we put on because of what's happening on the inside that comes out of us. And I want to talk about that. Paul talks about it a lot when he talks about putting on the armor of God. He talks about that in Ephesians, putting on the armor of God because it protects you against the wiles of the devil, okay? And man, there have been many times that I have literally thought about the breastplate of righteousness is my heart righteous? Is, is, it, is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Am I living with something, harboring something in my heart? You know, the, bre- the belt of truth is all, everything connected in, from my core up and from my core down is everything connected with truth bearing throughout. So I think about visually the armor and putting on the armor. Paul also talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he's talking about our future and he's going to talk about us putting on the imperishable, taking off the perishable. So putting on is a common theme with Paul. He talks about it in Colossians and that's where we're going to be. We were there last week. We're going to be there this week as well. But I want us to understand chapter 3 so incredibly well because it is the heart and soul of the book and the letter uh, to, to the church at Colossae, which we've been talking about for several weeks. And I want us to make sure we, we get the hinges that the book swings on, the chapter swings on. If you go to uh, Colossians chapter 3 and you look at verse 1, you see the first most, probably the most important hinge of it all whenever he puts this if clause there, this conditional clause. If then you have been raised with Christ. 
So everything that he's going to say following that is conditional to the fact that you have had a gospel encounter with the resurrected Christ. You've had a spiritual encounter with the resurrected Christ. I should define gospel. Gospel is an overused, underdefined phrase, but it really just means the death, burial, and resurrection and the impact that that has on our life. So that's why Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, Christ was raised, you've been raised. Christ died, you died. You spiritually died and you have new life in Christ. If that's not true of you, Everything I'm going to say today is not true of you. Everything that is going, we're going to talk about next week when we talk about the gospel effect of the, on your family, that there's a difference in your family even because of that resurrected Christ. And so we, we, that's just one big hinge. Another is right in the middle of the chapter in verse 12 where we're going to kind of kick off today when he talks about put on then as God's chosen. Okay, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. All right, isn't it beautiful to know when we're talking about big hinges, big gates swinging here on Colossians 3. It's beautiful to know and to live in the reality that that God in all of his love and all of his grace and all of his mercy, he chose me. He chose me to be a part of him. No, 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 some of, some of them go, wait, wait, I thought the chosen people were Israel. And yes, they were chosen, but they were not chosen because they were the elect few. They were chosen because it was going to be through the people of Israel that all the nations, all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Genesis chapter 12. So they were chosen in the sense that it would be through their line, not that they're the only blessed people of God. They were chosen so that God would use them to bring the line of Abraham all the way down to Jesus, that Jesus would be born in the line of that Jewish uh, tradition and that Jewish people group. However, you, if you're a child of God, if you've experienced the resurrected Christ, verse 1 that we just talked about, you are chosen of God. And that's, that's just something that I, when we talk about identity and who I am and what I am in life and what I contribute to society, listen, our identity is baked in, saturated in the fact that the God of the universe chose you. He chose you. He chose you. He did not reject you. He did not annihilate you. He did not give up on you, but he chose you. And that's just a beautiful reality that we need to live in. But because he chose us, one more hinge that the chapter 3 swings on is verse 17. It gives us the result of what we are to live our lives according to because of Jesus choosing us. And when And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So because of what he did, because of the resurrected Christ, because you were resu- because you re- received that resurrected Christ, because you've been chosen of God, listen, you and I, we live as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're his representatives. So how well are we representing him? How well do we represent him in life, on the job, in our relationships? And let me say this to you. 
that when we talk about relationships, it's not just, hey, dating relationships or mother-child relationships. As I said, next week, we're going to talk about the effects of the gospel on our families and how it totally permeates our family. But this is just relationships at large. There ought to be a difference. There ought to be a marked difference because of what Jesus did in our life in all of our relationships. Everything Paul's talking about in here, he's not talking about in the singular. He's not talking about in the individual. He's not talking about you, your, yourself, and I. He's talking about us collectively. What difference does it make in our life? And there should be a difference because the world will know we are his disciples, John chapter 13 says. They will know it's the acid test. It is the proof is in the pudding by our love for one another. So there has got to be a difference with us. What difference does it make? To be a part of a church, that collective called out assembly, what difference does it make in my life to have a family called the church? I hope you'll ask yourself that question. And you'll ask yourself in that question, what kind of member to the body of Christ am I? How am I bringing myself into this thing called relationships? Because relationships are messy and they're ugly and they're difficult and they're not easy. And I know I see enough people and I see enough relationships that some people don't do relationships well. Do you know people like that? I mean, it seems like it's one train wreck after another. It seems like it's one broken heart after another. It seems like it's one broken promise after another. They just don't do relationships well. And I would say this, what they need is a good dose of the difference that Jesus will make in your life, in your relationships. In fact, some of y'all right now in the car, or right right now I got out of your car coming in here, and you're just like right now ready to kill the person sitting next to you. I'm telling you this, the difference should be that Christ is going to make a difference in your relationship, and he may make it today. What is that? How does that work? How, does it, well, how do we live differently? Well, let's see it in its totality. Take your Bibles. Let's look at verse 12, chapter 3. Follow along as I read. Now, you're going to see right off the bat, he's going to talk about dress up. Paul's talking about dressing up, how we're going to dress differently. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's how God identifies you. That's how God looks at you. You're holy, you're loved, you're chosen. Beautiful words there. Put on what? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, and by all means, if you live in a relationship, you're going to have a complaint against another. How am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to live with this person? How am I supposed to tolerate this person? What am I going to do? Here's what you do. Here it is. Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to be uh, into one body. That's the collective group of who we are in this room today. That one body is the church And be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God in whatever you do, in word or deed. Do everything in the name as a representative. We read that earlier. As a representative of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I want us to talk about four rules of relationships, okay? Four things that I think will help your relationships be healthy, be life-giving, call them rules of engagement if you will. But the first one is in all your relationships. This is on the job, this is in the home, this is wherever you are. The first one is lead with your heart. Lead with your heart. Now, I'm going to say this. I will say it now. I may say it again later on. But this is a countercultural. The world will not tell you to lead with your heart. They'll tell you to lead with your head. They'll lead with your head. Lead with your head. There's so many, so many things. Listen, if you lead in any other way than with your heart, then you're missing the difference that living as a chosen one of God, living in that resurrection power, leading with your heart is the far better way to lead. Leading with your mouth is where a lot of people lead. They lead with their mouth. They say things they shouldn't say. Or, or, or maybe, maybe they're just really persuasive. Maybe they're just, they just really know how. They, maybe they're the, the loudest person at the table. Maybe whenever there's an argument, they will get the last word in. Now, I know you don't live with anybody like that, but they're out there. They got to get the last word in and they lead with their mouth and they're, 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 going, they're going to get their point across and they're going to make sure you get the point. They're going to lead with their mouth. Beware. Don't lead with your mouth. Leading with your hand. Well, excuse me, leading with your head is where, where, where basically you may be the smartest person at the table. You may have it all. You may have been trained in this. Who can argue with you because you have done the research and you're the smartest person in the room? Some people, it's leading with their hands. They're the most skilled person. They can do it. They know how to do it. Now, their character may be weak. They they may be really good at crunching numbers. They may be really good at analyzing. But man, I tell you, they got a sharp tongue and a sharp personality. They leave a wake wherever they go, but they're really good at it. So you just put up with it. Or you can lead with your heart. And leading with your heart will compensate many times for maybe not having the best hands or maybe not being the most articulate or maybe not being the smartest person. But if you lead well with your heart in every relationship, you will win people and you will influence them. As you've heard said before, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. There's something about when we lead with our heart, how it draws people in. Look with me carefully again at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, as God's holy ones, as God's beloved ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Now, this may, this, this is, oh yeah, I want those. I need to put those on. 
Because see, last week, if you remember, he talked about vices. He talked about five different vices. And in those, he told us, we got to take these off. He says, you need to put all these away from you. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. These are the things that you need to put away. Now that's in verse eight. Now you come to verse 12. And what does he say? Now what you need to do is you need to put on. You need to put on a compassionate heart. You need to put on kindness. You need to put put on meekness or humility. You need to put on patience. You need to put those on. So you take these off and you put those on. Now I got a question for you. Which of these in your closest relationships this past week were you more like? Were you more like verse 8 or were you more like verse 12? Were you more about the vices or were you more about the virtues? This verse has kicked me all over the room this past week. This verse has shown up in my life so many times. To start the week off, just to be fully transparent, Lori and I had one of those good ones, those good fights, okay? One of those good arguments. That was on, that was on Sunday night. I mean, what a way to end Sunday, okay? And that's one, it was one of those, and I'll just let you fill in the blanks because I know you don't have them, and so just imagine with me for a moment. And so it was one of those, and what do I do is I get up in the night, and I'm so frustrated, and I got so many more things that I'd like to drive at, and I got points to make, and I got principles to stand on, and I got arguments to, to, to get across, and she didn't understand this, and wh- why this, and, and all along I open it up, and it says, why don't Mike, you take off your anger, take off your wrath, take off your slander, take off your obscene talk, and Mike, why don't you put on this? a compassionate heart. Why don't you put on kindness and humility and meekness and patience? My friends, if we will lead with our hearts, it will revolutionize your marriage. It will revolutionize you on the job. It will make you the most admired person, the most in control person. You will be the person that people will want on their teams because you are now leading with your heart and not leading with your mind, your words, your power, your control, your position, your authority, and everything else involved. I've had emails and other opportunities where I've had to go back. Am I going to choose verse 8 or am I going to choose verse 12? Am I going to take the virtues or am I going to take take the vices. How am I going to react with people this week alone? What are you going to put on? What does it mean? These uncommon virtues. What does it look like when I put them on? Let's dive a little deeper real quickly. Not spending much time with them. You can spend as much time all week long. Let God deal with you this week on it. Okay. So compassionate hearts. What does that mean? It means I'm going to feel It's how I'm going to feel about others. A compassionate heart is how I'm going to emote with you, how I'm going to walk with you. Sympathy, you know, is I feel for you. Empathy is I feel with you. Whenever I take on a compassionate heart is I'm literally putting myself in your skin, in your thoughts, in your feelings, in your troubles, in your heartaches, where I am literally trying to enter into your life. And when I do that, it will require a deep level of emotional commitment of myself 
But we are called to have compassionate hearts. Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul said this. He said, hey, I want you to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and I want you to weep with those who are weeping. That's the beautiful picture of empathy. Whenever I enter into your life, your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions, your troubles, your successes, your good times, I'm rejoicing with you in that. Empathy requires more of you. I promise you. As you notice, what is the opposite of this compassionate heart? Whenever life is in turmoil, it's anger. It's verse 8. Am I going to respond in anger or am I going to respond with a compassionate heart? The difference is this. The difference is this. As wide as my arms can be and the impact the same. The second is kindness. How I treat others. How I treat them. How I interact with others. Wrath. Anger, malice, that's the the knee-jerk response. That's the natural response. That's the human response. But that's when we slam the door. Or do we open the door in kindness and walk with them? Humility, how I feel, how or how I see myself in relationship to others. How do I see myself in relationship with you? If I enter into the relationship and it's all about self-preservation, it's all about you respecting me, giving me the respect that I deserve, giving me the position that I am, and you understanding who I am. Parents will play this card with kids all the time. You do have the upper hand. You do have the authority. The law will stand behind you. You have all the rights in the world to demand your position of authority. But what if I took the humble position in the relationship and I actually saw you as more important than me? Mike, where do you get this? When you look at Jesus and you look the way he, the God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of, of us all, how did he treat us? How did he see himself next to us, the sinners, the broken of our society, the ones who keep messing things up. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says this. It says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourselves. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. He had one of humility. Meekness or gentleness, it says in some translations. You look at this. Compassionate hearts is how I feel about others. Kindness is how I treat others. Humility is how I see myself next to others. Gentleness and kindness may seem a little bit of of a blurred, uh, blurred thing there, but gentleness is more of an inner disposition of myself with you. Gentle, excuse me, kindness is more of an inner disposition of myself with you. Gentleness is literally how I touch you, how I interact with you, how I engage you with my words, how I engage you with my hands, how I, how I literally interact life on life with you. Here's something 
to make note of if you're a person who leads with his mouth or leads with their head is, listen to this. You can be right and wrong at the same time. You can be right on point and wrong on delivery. You can be right on principle and wrong on outcome. You can win the argument in the eyes of the court and justice system and lose the person simply by how we deal with them. Gentleness. Proverbs 15.1 A gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. Think about it. Does this gentleness mean you can't have the hard conversations? Absolutely not. Sometimes the best thing you can do is have a hard conversation with someone. I was with my, one of my one or another brothers recently. We were sitting down. We were having lunch together. And we had, one. he had with me a hard conversation. One of those that went was scheduled for an hour and went for an hour and a half. My first response was push back. He stayed there. And he pressed in lovingly and firmly and said, Mike, this is what I see. This is what I see. This is what I see. As much as I wanted to argue and push, it was true. It was true. It was true. Was it easy to hear that? No. Was he leading with his heart? Absolutely. And because he led with his heart, because he was compassionate, because he was kind, because he was humble, because he was gentle yet firm, I was able to take it in as hard as it was to hear. Which then leads to another way that this countercultural response would be, would be patience. Being patient. How I respond to others. How I respond. Not, not just react how I respond. And I know many of you know the difference between the two, but the thing is, is can you stop your tongue? Can you stop the mental argument in your head? Can you stop your hands from leaning out? Can you stop long enough, pull back deep breaths, deep breaths and say, okay, I am going to lead with my heart and not everything else. That's the difference that life together when the gospel impacts our lives makes on relationships is we learn how to to be more gracious. We learn how to be more humble. We learn how to enter into a relationship and lead with our hearts. Number two, loving daringly. Loving daringly. And when I say this, you got to understand I'm saying this to a culture that we subconsciously live in where we don't love daringly. We love in a shallow surface level where movies and music make up the genre, the depth of our love. 
the movies and music make up how we communicate and what we think about when we think about love, which is shallow feelings and, 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 and fleeting moments and, and narcissistic spoiled attitudes is basically what makes up a lot of people's love life. Jesus has a different standard. He has the gold standard and he calls us to it here. Take your Bibles and let's look carefully at what he calls us to. When he tells us, he says, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. I want you to underscore that because what he's going to do is now he's going to tell us, when I talk about bearing with one another, this is what I mean. Bearing with one another. If, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so that you also must forgive. And above all, these put on love. Put on love, which binds everything together in a perfect harmony. There's so much in this, these two verses alone that I wish I could spend a week. He's calling us to bear with, not bail on. The love of our day is a bailing on kind of love, not a bearing with kind of love. We need to understand there's so much more to this. There was a friend of mine some time back who was Used to be an officer at a pretty big company in town. You can guess which one that is. And he was an officer until he was no longer an officer. He said, Mike, he said, I used to get high fives from people walking in the hallway. I used to get texts and emails and affirmation. And I used to connect with this person and that person. And whenever I no longer was with the company, all of a sudden, my friends weren't there. I was no longer being texted. I was no longer getting the high fives. All of a sudden, my friends list began to become a little suspect. I didn't know who was with me and who was not with me anymore. He said, and now all of a sudden, I need them. And they're not there made this statement to me and I wrote it down. You see what real friends you have when you have nothing to give them. You see what real friends you have when you have nothing to give them. But your brokenness. See, bearing with someone is not some laissez-faire kind of happy-go-lucky, hey, just hang out with me. No, it's sometimes carrying the load because your friend can't carry the load. Carrying the friend, carrying the load because they don't have what it takes any longer to go any further. Love daringly is not an easy love. It's a sweating love. It's a, it's a perspiring love. It's a, it's a deep love. It's an abiding love. It's a, it's a persevering love. It's a love that will bear with 
carry for whenever the other person can't carry any longer. It's not the way this world offers up love. It's the way the Bible Christ models it for us. It's what Paul said in Galatians 6.2. Carry each other's burdens in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. See, this daring love that I speak of is a messy love because relationships are messy. This, this, this bearing love requires you to, to love and even be offended, but yet you keep loving. Even be wounded and you keep loving. Even be hurt and you keep loving because there's something in you that you're able to go deep and through the tragedies of life. Notice what he said there. He said, bearing with one another. Walk with them. Forgive them as you've been forgiven, as the Lord has forgiven you. Drop the mic. I mean, the gold standard of forgiveness, you take, I want, I want you to think for a moment, don't tell anybody, don't write it down, just think about it. I want you to think of your worst moment, your worst moment, the biggest lie you've ever told, the biggest time you ever cheated, and maybe you've never even been caught. I want you to think of your darkest moment, Okay? Do you realize Jesus forgave you of that? He forgave you of that thing that you're so shame-filled for, that you're so regretful of, that you wish you could relive it and, and, and not do it. You would not do it again. You would not do it the same way. We, you would not act that, react that. You would not say that. You would not do that. You would not spin that. You would not do meet them. You would not rendezvous with that person. You would not. You would not. You, would, you wish you could do Listen, Jesus Christ forgave you for that. Now, you take the greatest offense against you. That abuse, that betrayal, that lie that was told to you. Now, the gold standard is, is if Jesus forgave you, you've got to be able to forgive them. There is nothing that we can do that Jesus will not forgive us. There's nothing that somebody can do to us that by the grace of God in us, we can't forgive them. You know, if you haven't forgiven someone deeply, it's doubtful whether you've loved someone deeply because love requires forgiveness. I can tell you about my own dark alleys and I can tell you this, that there becomes this line of separation between those who shame you and those who walk with you. And it is vast. And the people that you thought would walk with you end up shaming you. It is devastating. But there's something about love that just requires a deeper part of who we are. I wish I could tell you, had time to tell you about Jerry Sitzer and his dark, dark moment happened and he lost so much 
And if you are looking for one of the best books I've ever read, Jerry Sitzer's book, A Grace Disguised. Every believer in Christ should read it. A Grace Disguised. Talks about the dark, darkest night of his life and where he had to come back and just choose if he was going to love again. And these are his words. The problem of choosing to love again is that the choice to love means living under a constant threat of further loss. But the problem of choosing not to love is that the choice to turn from love means imperiling the life of the soul. For the soul thrives in an environment of love. Soulful people love, so less people do not. Are you willing to love daringly? Number three, where you learn to live with an attitude of gratitude. I like the simplicity of the next words from Paul in verse verse 15 when he just said, be thankful. Just be thankful where it's an overflow of your life. We've all taught our kids, hey, say thank you. And there's a difference between when you tell your kids to say thank you and when your children just simply are thankful. They come to you. They're, they're overwhelmed. You see it on their face. It, it comes out. They, they, they even in childlike ways stumble on their words. There's just that gratefulness about them. That's what we need to have where we learn to live with an overflowing, not a holiday a year, but a lifetime and a life way and a lifestyle of being and learning to be thankful for the air that we breathe, for the water that we drink. Take out your bottles of water. I encourage you to drink it. Now, it's not Kool-Aid. It's not Jonestown, okay? It's just water. If your seal is broken, then uh, it might get you another bottle of water. I don't know what happened to it. But um, when's the last time you just said thank you for water? Just water. It's, It's just water, right? We have so much of it. I can tell you this, that there are villages in Africa. I can tell you there's 10 villages in Mozambique because of our water well project this past year, this past year's Christmas offering. There are 10 villages that there's now free flowing water because of your giving. And some of these people you will never meet, you will never know, but they now have water by the gallons, by the thousands of gallons, 6,000 plus people now have water because of Grace Point putting in, giving them money to give to nationals, to dig wells and drill wells and to cap those wells so they can have clean, free-flowing water. Eight to 10,000 gallons available every day. To villages, again, 10 villages that, again, you, I can't even pronounce the names of the villages. 
but they have water. Things that we take for granted. Sometimes we come back to these Christmas offerings and we'll have another one we'll talk about next week for this coming year. And the thing is, is every one of these, whether it's an orphanage in Africa or it's women being trafficked in South Asia or it's water, we're, we're never collecting for opulent lifestyles. We're collecting and offering for the most basic things that we take for granted. May we drink our water today with grateful hearts. It will change your relationships when you start appreciating those little things that that other person does that you take for granted. Being thankful. Lastly, now let me, let me say this. If you want to hear more about Mozambique, you want to hear more about South Asia, you want to hear more. I mean, we got so much. We got, there's one village. They tried to drill. While we only have 10 out of 12 wells, they tried to drill about seven times in one village and they could not find water. You want to hear more in depth about what's going on in West Africa? You want to hear more in depth on a couple of Tuesday nights from now, not this week, but the next week, uh, we're going to have just a, a night where you're going to hear story after story after story. We're going to have a meal together. I invite you to come to that. Be a, let that just be date night for you. And let's come and let's hear the stories of God together. You can sign up for all that online. Let's talk about number four. When we link ourselves together in worship, see, this is not something that the world can do. When we link ourselves together in worship, there's a beauty and there is a spiritual depth and growth that happens that would happen in no other form or no other way. The linking ourselves together in worship is what we're called to do. It's not a spectator sport. This is not you come to the worship center and you watch the worship band sing worship songs and we sit in our worship seats and we look at the worship lyrics and we go home. This is worship. You don't come to worship, you bring worship, okay? Worship is merely ascribing worth to something. We are coming in this room and we're saying that, listen, God is worthy. He is awesome. He is incredible. He's done so many things. He's chosen me. He's loved me. He's called me holy. He died on a cross. I believe in that resurrected Christ. It's impacted my life. I'm going to represent him all the days of my life. Those three verses that we talked about in the beginning. And that, my friend, is where I want to bring my worship to. I want to bring it to the God of the universe. And one of the ways that we try to do this, we do that in this room every week, but listen, we're going to try to do it in your homes. We're going to give you a guide this week, and if we run out this week, there'll be more next week. But it's one per family, and it's just basically an Advent worship guide where you can lead your family. If you're, you know, I'm not married, I don't have kids. There's a whole section if you're not married and you don't have kids. There's a section for kids and it's, it's all there, okay? We try to bundle it together, but we can't make you worship. On the first of the new year, we're not even gonna meet in this building for worship. That's a Sunday on January 1st. We're giving you family worship Sunday. We're sending you home and everything is in this guide. I'm not advertising this. I'm just saying, hey, listen, worship is a full-time, all-time, 24-7 experience. What happens here on Sunday is we bring our worship. 
We want you to worship at home and bring your worship here. The scriptures say when we talk about worship and giving value and honor to God, how do we do that? He tells us in John 4, 24, there's two criteria. Very important you get these down. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Spirit is the subjective part of who I am. My spirit connecting with God's spirit. It's a personal, imminent relationship with God that I learn about this transcendent God through truth and through the Word of God and through this objective truth of Scripture. And I blend my objectivity, uh, the objectivity of Scripture and the subjectivity of my spirit together and I bring it in worship. That's how we connect with God in worship. It's exactly what he was talking about in verse 16 and 17. He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another with all the wisdom. And, the, and then he comes in and he's talking about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness of heart to God. Let me break those down. We inhale, we inhale God's truth, God's word. We inhale the objective truth of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, abundantly, fully overflowing. Listen, you don't worship God in a vacuum. You don't worship Him from an empty soul. If you don't take this book and make it a part of your life and your day-to-day life, if it's not a part of the conversations around the table when the kids are making their decisions about college and relationships and decisions about life, if, if you as moms and dads don't sit around and say, you know what, God's teaching me this, the, it's like you're empty. You're not inhaling the truth of God. You inhale the truth. You inhale richly dwelling in you. But you exhale singing psalms, hymns. You inhale truth and allow that to transform you, shape you. And then you exhale praises to our Father. I want us to do something today. I want us to breathe in. As deep of a breath as we can breathe in, let us fill up our lungs, fill up your diaphragm, fill it all up, everything within you to your fingertips. Get as much air inside of you. And I'm going to count to five. We're going to hold our breath. Now, if you start to pass out, let the air out. We don't want people slain in the spirit, falling out of their chairs here. All right? Just breathe it in. And then hold it, and I will count. And then I want us all to exhale at the same time. Are you ready? Three, two, one. You know, the thing is, you have nothing to give in worship if you don't first inhale. You have nothing to give. I want us to give 
honor and worship to the Lord, the King, the God of the universe. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let us stand and let us today worship him right now.